Once again, we look at this evening at the book of Acts, and we'll begin reading in Acts chapter 27, and read the first few verses of Acts chapter 28. Acts 27, beginning at verse 39, uh, to Acts chapter 28, verse 10. <clears throat> Listen as God speaks to us from his word this night. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and for the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So it was that all were brought safely to land. And after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were the lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed." Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this night as we engage in the study of your word, and we ask, O Lord, that we will recognize that you are at work in the things that you have recorded for us. And we pray, our Father in heaven, that as we see the way in which your hand was at work in days gone past, that we will long for you to be at work in our lives in these days as well. And so we ask, open your word to us and encourage us to look for you at work in our midst. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I I know nothing about sailing. Uh, My time on a sailboat has just been sitting there, letting somebody else take care of the sailing. I can't even remember if they ever told me, move from this place to that place. I'm, I'm a complete and absolute ignoramus. I don't know the difference between a foresail, a topsail, or a mainsail. 
I have no idea how you use the rudder to guide a ship. I, I don't know how you use anchors. I'm confused when people talk about bow and stern and fore and aft. And with all that said, tonight we're going to look at things that happened uh, in a sea voyage by the Apostle Paul. And you will notice that I will not be explaining to you the things that they did to keep the ship afloat, because uh, quite frankly, even after I read about it, I'm not sure I understand what they were doing. And so we're going to look at this, and you're going to take and have as your guide a, a complete ignoramus. But with all this in mind, let's tackle Luke's account of Paul's trip from Caesarea to almost to Rome aboard a sailboat. And first of all, we'll do this in a very simple kind of way. We'll look first of all at what happens to Paul while he's at sea. And then we will uh, look at him in that, that while well, he's at sea, and his uh, time at sea will end in a shipwreck. So that will be the end of his sea voyage. Uh, then we're going to look at what happens to the Apostle Paul. And what I think will strike us as we look at this, after being shipwrecked, the next thing we find out about Paul is he's snake-bitten. And so we're going to look at that, and then after we look at those two things, we're going to try to see if we can't draw some helpful conclusions about all of this. Now, Paul starts off his trip in Caesarea, and you may recall why he's in Caesarea. He's there because he got involved in a, in a riot where the Jews in Jerusalem were furious about him, accusing him falsely of, of bringing Gentiles into the temple. And uh, Paul has had to defend himself before the Sanhedrin. Uh, he's had to defend himself before Felix, before Festus, uh, uh, Roman officials. He's had to defend himself before Agrippa. Uh, but while he was defending himself, uh, Paul appeals to Caesar. And this appeal to Caesar entails then going to Rome. And so when we meet Paul in chapter 27, he is then on his way to Rome. He is appealed to Caesar, and so he has to go and appear before the Roman tribunal. And that means that he's going to Rome. And he was sent there, we're told, in the custody of a man named Julius. Julius is a centurion. Um, we don't know anything about uh, uh, Julius other than his name and what we find out about him in this uh, text before us. We also know that Paul is accompanied by two of his friends, uh, people that we've seen, we see in other places in the scripture. He's accompanied by, by Luke, and Luke is the author, and we know that Luke is along with him because he's the we uh, that's writing in the book of Acts. And he's also... Uh, accompanied by Aristarchus, and Aristarchus is, uh, uh, comes in other places in the scriptures as well. And we don't know how they got to go along with, with, uh, with Luke, or they, with uh, Paul. We don't know if they just went along as, as other passengers, if they went along as somehow as servants. Some people argue that they, they, they came along sort of as Paul's slaves. I'm less inclined to think that's uh, the case at all. Now, as we see all these people getting ready to go on the first uh, boat that they get onto, uh, one of the things that, that Luke points out is some of the people who go along with them. And so I want to look a little bit at some of the uh, people that, that uh, Paul develops, if you will, a kind of relationship. Uh, Luke points this out to us. And uh, um, uh, the, the, the first one that we notice is uh, that he has this connection with the centurion Julius. 
As I said, we don't know much about Julius. We don't know if he was one of the people that was assigned um, uh, to uh, 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 Caesarea and that he had some role there. Uh, some others speculate that this may be his job. He's the U.S. Marshal of the day, and so he takes prisoners from one place to the other. Uh, we, we, we just can't tell. The text doesn't tell us that, and there's not enough corroborating evidence anyplace else to really make a judgment about that. Uh, we do know that, uh, uh, that, that, that somehow in all of this, Julius and Paul get some kind of a relationship, and that relationship between Julius and Paul leads Julius to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily see done. So as they, after they leave Caesarea, they come to Sidon, and when they get to Sidon, what does Julius do? He allows Paul his prisoner had to go with uh, some of his friends. We assume those are people from the church. Uh, they take care of Paul uh, while he's there. So we, we see this uh, on the part of, of Julius and his relationship with uh, Paul. So uh, uh, Luke describes this as uh, Julius uh, treated Paul kindly. Um, they move from there and they get uh, uh, to a port called Fairhaven. And when they get to Fairhaven, they have to make a judgment about whether they're going to stay there for the winter or if they're going to sail on. Now, Julius somehow uh, uh, gets Paul's advice about what they should do here. I don't know exactly how that started. My take is he probably asked uh, for Paul's advice. And that wouldn't be odd because Paul was a, a, you know, a frequent sailor. Uh, you know, people speculate that Paul uh, traveled thousands of miles. If you get a and go through the book of Acts and see all the places where he sailed from one to another place. Uh, one commentary says that he sailed 3,500 miles at least uh, in his lifetime with what's recorded in Acts. And so Paul is an experienced traveler, and they ask Paul about whether they ought to stay in Fairhaven or not, and Paul tells them uh, that they ought to. Uh, Julius rejects Paul's advice and goes with the other sailors and the owner of the boat, uh, but <clears throat> we see that... that the oddity of this, I don't know if it strikes you as odd, Paul the prisoner is giving advice to the guy who's in charge, namely Julius the Roman centurion. Uh, when the ship was about to uh, um, uh, go aground, uh, when they got to Malta, Julius uh, heeds Paul's advice. Paul tells him, don't let those sailors get into that little dinghy and leave the rest of us here. He says, if, you don't, if they get away from here, people are going to die. And what does Julius do? He tells his soldiers, cut the ropes, let it float away. And so they set the dinghy free. So we see Paul having this, this connection. As the ship is breaking up and the Roman soldiers are worried that their, their prisoners, that they have them, will escape. And you, you know the, the story back in, earlier in Acts about the Philippian jailer when he thought this prisoners were going to escape, what did he do? He pulled out his sword, he's going to kill himself because he was responsible and probably had been put to death if his prisoners got away. So that's probably what's happening here with the, centurion, with the Roman soldiers under the centurion Julius's command. But Paul, in order to, to save Paul, Luke writes for us, uh, the uh, uh, centurion says, uh, don't kill the prisoners, which would have been, it seems to me, the ordinary thing to do. Now, I point all this out and I call all this to your attention because we have to ask ourselves the question, why does the prisoner seem to have such an influence 
on his prison keepner, if you will, on the person that's taking care of him. My judgment is that Luke notices the way in which the Apostle Paul has had, by what he did, by what he said, he made some kind of connection with these people. He made some kind of approach to the uh, centurion. We, we don't, Luke doesn't describe what it is for us, but he made some kind of approach to him that the centurion, at the very end, uh, does something that's against the rules, if you will, and the reason why he does something against the rules, namely to put the prisoners to death, is because of his affection, his care, he wanted to do for Paul. And I think we have to pay attention to that. Now, here is the apostle. He's, he's the prisoner. Uh, he's the one that's, uh, you know, probably had some kind of chains on him at some time or other. Uh, and he's the one to whom Julius is paying attention, and he's the one that Julius wants to save. And so in, his, in our uh, dealing with others, I think that's important for us to, to, to see that Christians need to do things that, uh, that can uh, uh, merit the uh, respect and even the affection of those who are around us. So we, we see the way in which this relationship comes up. We also see that, that, uh, uh, that, that, that they face these perils at sea, and here's where I find myself at sea, if you will. Uh, the journey to Rome was filled with all kinds of difficulties from the start. Uh, it was late in the year, and by the time they reached this port called Fairhaven, we told the fast had already passed, and that's probably referring to the Day of Atonement. If we judge the days, the year right when they were on this trip, then it's probably in October already. And sailing in the Mediterranean was not done in the winter, especially if you were in a sailboat, you, couldn't, you just couldn't depend on the winds. And so uh, all kinds of things happen. Uh, Luke points out that you get these winds called a, a northeaster that are very dangerous to sail in. So after they rejected Paul's advice, they take off from Fairhaven, and the ship is caught in a terrible storm. And the sailors uh, 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 feared that they, they couldn't be saved because they were driven off course, and they despaired of, of even surviving, uh, Luke tells us in verse 20 of chapter 27. Uh, during this storm, uh, no one knew where they were, and Luke describes in rather vivid terms uh, the perils that they encountered as they were uh, driven by the storms, and the crew is clearly unable uh, to control the ship. It's just getting blown about by the wind, as, as best we can understand that. And then as they, they approach Malta, they don't know where they are, but they approach Malta and they get the idea that they're getting close to shore. And so they take a sounding uh, to see how deep the water is and it's deep. And then they take another sounding and it's less deep. And even a non-sailor like me knows you're probably approaching land uh, at that time. And so that's what happens. They are hoping for daylight, but when they uh, find... Uh, uh, daylight comes, they determine that there's a beach there, and they're going to try to, to put the uh, boat up on a beach. Uh, they don't make it, they hit a reef, and the winds and the waves come at them, and they break all of this up. And one may wonder, why does Luke include all of these, these, these parts to it? Uh, uh, you know, strange things that, that non-nautical people uh, just don't understand. You wonder, why does Luke do all of this, uh, put all of this out? Why does God uh, include all of this as he directs Luke in recording all of these things? And I clearly don't think Luke does this because 
maybe Axe is getting a little tiresome and he needs uh, something in there, you know, to pump up interest. Now, there are those who actually argue such that, you know, this is a, a down story and so what you really need is a nice shipwreck and a rescue and everything and you'll get everybody to pay attention to you. I don't, don't really think that's, uh, that's what's going on here. It's my take that Luke includes this to show us how in the midst of very difficult circumstances, God is overseeing everything. God is determined to make it so that whatever it is that he had determined, namely that Paul was going to testify to him in Rome, Paul is going to testify to him in Rome. So it does seem to me that's what's going on. Another one of the things that Luke uh, uh, emphasizes for us is the, the way in which Paul gives some advice. And as we look at this, if you uh, look at these texts, uh, you, you may wonder what's going on because it does seem at first glance that Paul gives contradictory advice. Uh, when they're at Fairhaven, uh, Paul tells them, don't leave, uh, stay here. And uh, then uh, uh, when they... Uh, uh, are out at sea and they're at a loss for what's going on, um, uh, Paul changes his mind. At Fairhaven, he says to them that there would be injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of lives. And uh, uh, then Paul gives uh, other advice. Uh, he tells them uh, that while they're on the, uh, not many days after uh, being on the storm-tossed sea, Paul once again offered his recommendation on what would, what would happen. And uh, um, Paul not only offers uh, contrary uh, guidance, but when Paul gives his, adv his advice there, he does something that, you know, at first it, I think it would almost grade anybody. What does Paul say? You know, if you'd have stayed at Fairhaven like I told you, you wouldn't have faced all this. And uh, Luke points all of this out. And then uh, Paul gives his advice. He tells them uh, what's going to happen, and he gives his second direction. But this time, Paul gives his direction that, uh, that he got this from the angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now, I doubt that this is the first time that Paul has mentioned who God is. As surely, Paul had opportunities to tell people about why he was going to, uh, to Rome, uh, what the reason was, why he, he was a follower of the Lord Jesus, uh, how he had tried to explain this to the Jews in, in uh, Jerusalem at the temple, and how he had been uh, going about telling all of these uh, all along. And, uh, but, but one of Paul's the first advice that Paul gives, which is uh, wrong, uh, because we do know that everybody was rescued on the ship, I think that's Paul's advice. That's uh, we're, well, you know, a worldly traveler who's been around every place, and he, he uh, gives that advice, and his advice at that point is wrong. And then when we see this advice that he gives from the, from the angel, turns out to be exactly right because of the source of that. And I think it's not a big problem there. Paul was wrong when he gave that first advice. Uh, he had been a uh, traveler on, on the sea, had been at many places and uh, rode in many boats, I guess, uh, but he still was wrong. And uh, so he gives this uh, update on it, if you will. And uh, so he's uh, uh, right at this point. Uh, so it's advice of a seasoned traveler over the word that comes from, uh, from the angel. Uh, Paul's connections with those on the ship is highlighted by his advice to them also about eating. 
Uh, we don't know if they didn't eat anything for 14 days. That seems unlikely, but it seems that they probably weren't eating very much at all. And Paul tells them, look, it's time for you to eat. It'll strengthen you. And Paul not only tells them it's time to eat, but what does the text tell us that Paul does? He sets the example of eating, and before he eats, what does he do? He gives thanks to God for that food. So he tells them about that. So we see Paul in the midst of all these things that are going on, doing what? He's behaving as a Christian. And he's behaving as a Christian in a way in which those who are around him can see what he's doing. So we, Paul finally gets to the land. We find him arriving at Malta. And just as the angel told Paul, all were brought safely to the land. And they do learn that the name of the island is in Malta. Now, Malta is generally a warm climate. That's, that's generally what we find. But uh, two things seem to be going on. They had whatever a cold night in Malta amounts to. They must have had that cold night. But we have to remember where these, these people came from. They came from a shipwreck. You know, they were out in the water. They come into the water. They're cold uh, after all of that. And so these people at Malta treat them very well. And they build a fire or fires for them. We can't tell if it's one big bonfire or the number of smaller fires. But whatever's going on, uh, Paul um, helps out. So he goes and he gathers a bundle of, of wood to be burned in the fire. And when he's dumping his wood in the fire, what happens? You know, a snake gets hold of him and bites him, it seems, probably on the hand. And uh, uh, what does Paul do? Shakes it into the fire. That's, that's what happens. Now, the people on Malta, typical of the superstitions that probably prevailed in Malta, they looked at him and they thought, aha, that guy's a murderer. And that murderer is, uh, got away from dying at sea, but uh, the snake is going to be the instrument of justice. And justice, if you'll notice in your ESVs, is, is capitalized because it seems likely that these people believed that justice was some kind of a god or other, or the instrument of some kind of a god. But what they're saying is, it looks like he tried to get away by surviving the shipwreck, but the snake got him. So, but Paul shakes the snake into the, into the fire and destroys the snake, and the people watch. I mean, I, I can just imagine this, you know. How long is he going to last? You know, when, when, is, when is he going to fall over? And he doesn't fall over. You know, here they're all thinking, that guy must be terrible. Why isn't he dropping dead? You know, I mean, that's, that seems to be what, what we see in the text. And he doesn't drop dead. What do they do now? Well, they, they, they switch sides. <laughs> they say, he can't be a murderer. He must be a god. And so, so we do see in the people in Malta this kind of superstition. And I think it's important for us to recognize that this is the audience to which Paul will be addressing himself for three months while he's on Malta. That these are people who are superstitious and they, they, they hold to their superstitions. They see something, snake bite, guy must be a murderer. Doesn't drop dead, he must be a god. I mean, you see the, the character of the superstitions that are going on. But while Paul is there on Malta, he not only survives the snake bite, but we're also told that he is invited by this man Publius, and he is described as the chief man or the main man on the island. And we don't know if that's because he's the richest man and has lots of land and property and money and things like that, or if he actually has some kind of an office. My suspicion is those two might be together, that he is both rich 
and has some kind of an office. But he invites people there. I don't think he invites all 276 passengers on that, on that uh, boat, but he invites some, probably uh, Paul and uh, probably Luke and maybe Aristarchus, we could speculate, probably Julius as well and some other soldiers. But he, he invites them there and he entertains them in his house for three days, we're told. And while he's there, Paul comes and understands that Publius' father is sick. He has a fever and dysentery. And, and people who read this uh, in the early days would have said, aha, that shows he's from Malta because Malta was known for a kind of fever and dysentery that people got because on Malta there were goats that had some kind of microbe in them. It came out in the milk, and when you drank the milk, you got fever and dysentery. But Paul goes to this man and he, he prays for him and then he lays his hands on this man and this man is healed. And not only is this man healed, then somehow that news gets out and all the people who have any kind of illness or sickness, they come to the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul uh, heals them. And so they're healed. And the text goes on to tell us that, uh, that uh, the people are grateful for that, that they, they actually honor them. We don't know if that honoring of them is, is just saying, well done, you know, amazing what you did for all of us, or well done, here's a buck. Uh, that's the sort of thing also. It's, it's a language that can be used either for, uh, you know, congratulations or here's some money and that they actually do know that when they got to leave they put the stores on the on the boat so that they would have food and things to go on with a further journey but as I look at this text I, I ask myself certain questions you know, here's Paul and he heals these people now can you imagine that the Apostle Paul when he healed this man and he prayed over him and laid his hands on him he didn't explain to this man this father of Publius, and anybody else that came to him, he didn't explain how it was that he could heal somebody. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul praying, mumbling a prayer, putting his hands on somebody, and not saying who it was that gave him the power to do these things? That just boggles the mind, doesn't it, that Paul would leave that out. In the midst of all of this, I think we can draw the conclusion that Paul would certainly have said that. And it seems to me it fits in very well with what we see in the rest of the book of Acts, namely that miracles are done both to confirm the message that's made and to attest to the person who's able to do those kind of miracles. You go back through and you see the miracles that Luke includes in the book of Acts, and they have that, that dual focus of confirming the word and attesting to the individual who brings that word to them. And I trust that, that, that I just judge that Paul is doing that, that he is, he is explaining to these people who, uh, who it is that gives him the ability to, uh, to uh, cure, to, to uh, uh, make people better, from whether they're suffering from dysentery or whatever it is. Uh, Paul is able to do those kind of things. As I said, then the uh, islanders are generous and they provide them with food so that they can go on. Now, what do we get from this? Certainly it's an interesting story, and my suspicion is, if you know a lot more about sailing than I know, it's a, it's a downright interesting story. I mean, all the things that they do of trying to lighten the boat, throwing over different things. It's a fascinating story in the way in which they keep coming. But as I said before, I don't think that's the purpose. So what are we supposed to do uh, with a story like this, with this uh, uh, thing that's going on? And uh, I think one of the things that we have to, first of all, come to conclude is that God works in the midst of strange circumstances. 
Uh, one can easily imagine the general feeling on this ship uh, was one of despair and fear. I mean, the, the men despaired that they, they were going to be rescued, that they would live through all of this. We do know that. And my suspicion is that if any of us had been on that boat, we would have been in despair too. I mean, this, this is the end. It would have been what we were thinking about. And I suspect that some of us may have been wondering, where in the world is God in the midst of all of this? in, in these, these kind of harsh circumstances. Now, Luke doesn't tell us at all um, how Paul felt about what was happening to him on this voyage, and, uh, and neither does he tell us about how the others were feeling, other than to tell us that, that they felt a sense of despair. They didn't think that they could be um, uh, saved from all of this. And the closest he comes is that uh, Julius wished to save the Apostle Paul. But this doesn't mean that, that these passengers on, these people on this boat, were devoid of feelings. As I said, one cannot imagine that without uh, uh, them being anything but filled with fear and with despair. Uh, but we, we know what Luke is doing. We know what he's doing as he writes about this to Theophilus. He wants Theophilus to see the way in which the Lord Jesus who started his work, and he wrote about that in Luke's in his gospel, he wants, to, people to, wants Theophilus and all of us to see the way in which God is continuing to work and the way in which God's people are responding to that work, in particular here, because Luke wants us to see the way in which the gospel spreads uh, from Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the world. And so Luke is, is putting all of these things in here somehow uh, to carry out his instruction of the man to whom he wrote this book, namely a man named Theophilus. And uh, we know that God is present in the, in the events that Luke describes. And uh, we cannot miss uh, this when uh, God gives Paul the assurance that he's going to get to Rome. Just, just think of how this would have come to Paul. Uh, you'll remember back uh, earlier that uh, uh, Paul was told, remember, uh, uh, we don't know how God appeared to him, but he came to Paul uh, in the night, probably beside his bed, and he told Paul that just as he had testified to, uh, to the Lord Jesus in, in Jerusalem, that he was also going to testify to him in, in uh, Rome. And what happens on this uh, a trip when the boat seems to be lost? The sailors don't think that they can save it. They despair if they will be rescued at all. And we find in verse 24 that, that uh, Paul says that he must, that, that the angel came and told him that he must stand before a Caesar. Uh, so God is not only present with uh, Paul and the others, but he's also making sure that his plans for the Apostle Paul are worked out. And think of all that is happened to the Apostle Paul. We, we often forget the way in which God works in our lives, but just think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul started off doing a good deed. I'll try to remind you of this way back. Why did Paul go to Jerusalem? He wanted to take a gift that he had been collecting from all the churches. He wanted to take a gift and he wanted to take that to the people in Jerusalem. While he was there, he encountered all the other Christians, other Christians and the Christian leaders that were there, and they told him, people here don't like you, Paul. They don't trust you, and we want you to do a certain thing. We want you to take certain vows, go along with these men who have taken vows, and go into the, into the temple with them. And so Paul did that, and while he's in the temple, this false accusation is made against him that he brought Gentiles into there. And what happens to the Apostle Paul? 
The people in the, in the uh, uh, temple, they want to kill Paul. There's a riot there, and the purpose of that riot is to kill Paul, and Paul would have been killed except that the Romans came down and they rescued him. So, so, so this is where Paul is starting off. I mean, his circumstances that he has found himself in. But what happens next? The Romans rescue him. They bring him in. Paul gives an opportunity to, to make a presentation, if you will, on the, uh, at the, temp, at the, at the uh, fortress Antonio where the Romans are. And after he does that, again, the Jews want to kill him. Uh, but they, they rescue him and they take him in. But what do the Romans do to him then? They stretch him out so they can flog him. To try to beat the truth out of him. And Paul is uh, rescued from this only because uh, he's a Roman citizen. So Paul's circumstances don't get any better. What happens to him next? He has to go and defend himself before the Sanhedrin. And again, the Romans have to come to rescue him. He has to defend himself before the Roman rulers. He does that three times. The Roman rulers can't find anything wrong with Paul, but they keep wanting to do a favor to the Jews, so Paul is, is being put upon. Again, the circumstances seem to get, get complicated and get worse as Paul goes through all of these things. Then he gets to, he gets to Caesarea, and uh, uh, he appeals uh, to, to to uh, a Caesar. He, he, wants, he, wants, he wants the Roman judicial system uh, to, to uh, rescue him from, from the opposition of the Jews. And while he's going through all of these trials and things, what's going on in Jerusalem? Forty guys have decided they want to murder him. And they aren't going to eat until they get a chance to do so. And the only reason Paul gets away from that is because his nephew hears about it and goes to the Antonia Fortress and he explains about this and they send Paul to Caesarea. So that's how it is. But once he gets to Caesarea, the Jews want him to come back to Jerusalem. And what do they want to do on the way back to Jerusalem? They want to murder him. You see, the circumstances in which the Apostle Paul finds himself keep just keep growing in terms, in my judgment, they, they, they're like snowballs. Uh, they keep getting bigger and bigger. Now he's on, a, he's on this ship, and it's shipwreck comes about with that. He gets on land, and he's snake bit. Uh, you know, try to think of something else that bad could happen to him. You see, that's, that's the circumstances in which we find the Apostle Paul as we look at this, all the things that have happened to him since back in when we first saw him in, uh, coming into Jerusalem back in chapter 21. Um, as Paul made his way, he, he experiences all of these horrific things. And I don't think I can be accused of exaggerating when I say that Paul underwent terrible, terrible circumstances. But notice what we don't find in any of these texts. Paul doesn't once say, woe is me, why are all these bad things happening to me? I'm a good person. It's not what Paul does. It's not what he does at all. And we're told little about what was going on while Paul went through and endured the uh, storm and the shipwreck. Um, we know that he assured his fellow travelers that God would spare them. And it's important to note the way in which, God, which Paul frames his assurances to the people that they would be spared through the ship, but that the ship would be destroyed. He tells them, it was, he tells them who it was that gave him this, this message that he repeated to them. And how does he tell them about it? He says, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now, I can't imagine that this is the first time that the Apostle Paul has mentioned God. Not at all. 
the God that he belongs to and the God that he worships. This is, this is the Apostle Paul that we've seen the way in which he has responded to antagonism to them. The antagonism, for example, that he experienced in the uh, temple. It was to, to tell them about his conversion, to tell them about how he was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in the midst of these horrible circumstances, I think probably let them know that he belonged to the Lord Jesus and that's who he worshipped. And we see the same thing it strikes me when we see him in, in, in Malta, when he's at the home of Publius and he heals the father of Publius and the other people. I can't imagine that uh, uh, Paul did not tell them uh, who cured these diseases. I can't imagine that he did not uh, reiterate the words that uh, Peter said. You may ask us by whom uh, this man is healed when he healed the uh, lame man at the temple. And it was because of Jesus Christ that this man was healed is what Peter says. I can't imagine that Paul would not be doing and saying the same things. And as we look at Paul here, I think we have to be careful always of, of, of um, making too much of, um, um, of, yeah, of imitating him. But in all of what happened on this voyage to Malta, Paul gives evidence of two things. He trusted God and he trusted the word that God lived at, uh, gave to him. And as we look at the example of Paul... And we see, for example, how he ate. He gives thanks to God as the one who provided the food for him. Now, God's care for Paul and Paul's action in the midst of, of all of this uh, forces me to, to raise some kind of questions. As we undergo difficult circumstances, uh, some of them may not be more as difficult as others, but we all experience difficulties in circumstances, and we react to those circumstances in different ways. And, and when bad things happen to us, what do we do? Um, are you like I am often? Something bad happens to me, and I go into a deep funk, you know? This is, this, you know... <laughs> I don't like bad things to happen to me. And I ask the question, why are these things happening to me? And I think probably in the back of my mind someplace, I'm saying, why are these happening to me and not happening to somebody else? I mean, you know, those kind of things that go through our mind. We're, 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 we're pulled down by those, those circumstances that can, that can come to us. Um, and I think probably we also ask, why is God allowing this to happen to me? Why is this happening to me? We don't see any of that recorded about the Apostle Paul. We don't see it at all in these texts. And we doubt that God is present in those circumstances. But it seems to be one thing that we often fail to do is to be able to say, I am in these difficult circumstances because the God who loves me and sent his son to die on my behalf is the God who is at work forming me into the very image of that Jesus who died for me. And he's taking all of these circumstances, the circumstances sometimes that can be filled with joy, and we can say, whoopee, but also in those circumstances that are filled with tears, and we say, woe is me. God's at work in us. Luke knew that. Paul had to know that. Paul was told, you are going to, from Jerusalem to Rome, and the reason you are going from Jerusalem to Rome is to testify for me. And when we go through difficult circumstances, I don't think that we can come to any other conclusion. But that just as Paul had to go through all those circumstances 
He had to do that so that he could testify, so that he could come to be the one that people heard about the Lord Jesus from them. And when we confront the good or bad circumstances, we, we, we recognize we're Christian people. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we, we, we face those circumstances and we face them poorly, we face them with woe is me, we face them with a question in our minds, where is God in the midst of all of this? When we raise those questions, I think it's important for us to remember certain things, to remember certain things about the God that Paul worshipped. Let me call some things to your attention. Let me invite you to remember the words of Jesus. I am with you always to the end of the age. It's bad. It's ugly. It's hurting. I can't see my way out. And Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Who's saying that? <laughs> that Jesus, who recently had hung upon Calvary's cross to bear the penalty that our sins deserve. He's with us. He understands us. The writer of Hebrews tells us that he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what we're going through, the Lord Jesus is with us. And when we forget those promises, I invite you to remember the words that the Apostle John writes in 1 John 1, 9, words that we all know. When we, when we f allow circumstances to overwhelm us and we forget about the presence of God, we forget about the power of God, we forget to speak on the behalf of God, remember those words that I think most of you probably know. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That when you forget God, he will forgive you for that. That's amazing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing for us. I can assure you that you're going to face uh, difficult circumstances at some place in your life. And you will either react in ways that parallels those of, parallel those of Paul, or you will forget about your loving Savior. But the amazing thing is, brothers and sisters, you, I, may forget about God being with me. I may forget that Jesus is with me. But Jesus never forgets. Never. At the depths of my doubts, he's there. At the depths of when I question how these things could happen to me and why isn't God doing something about them. He's there. And I think Paul understood that. I think that was one of the things that made the Apostle Paul able to go through all that he went through and then to sit down at a meal and say, thank you, God, for providing this food for me and encouraging other people to join in. That's how we could go to be on the island of Malta and, and offer a, a restoration for those people. And we need to remember that. Yes. We will sin. We will break God's law. We will forget his presence with us. And he will forgive us when we ask him to. And he will never, no, never forsake us. I say that to you. I say that to you. And I marvel at it at the same time. How is it 
that I can have a Savior who loves me with such a genuine, unfailing love that when I doubt him, when I abandon him, he does not abandon me. I hope you wonder. I hope you marvel at that just in the way I do. It's amazing. Amazing. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the promises you make to us to never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you for the model of the Apostle Paul, that he faithfully declared your word even in the midst of difficult circumstances. He trusted that what you told him would come about. And we pray, our Father in heaven, that as we reflect upon the fact that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you will always be with us. Encourage us, even in the depths of terrible circumstances, to remember that you are with us always. We thank you for that knowledge. We thank you for that assurance. And we do so in Jesus' name. And together we say, amen.